Old Testament passage today picks up in 2 Kings chapter 23 with the reforms under Josiah, the young boy king. Then the king sent, and all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem were gathered to him. And the king went up to the house of the Lord. And with him all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and the prophets, all the people, both great and small. And he read in their hearing all the books of the word of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of God. He read the, the law. Now notice the king read. The king read this. He said, listen, guys, we haven't, we haven't been obeying God. Now I've... I've gone and I've prayed and and God has said, great, we're going to be saved for this generation. But he said, you need to hear this. And the king didn't delegate this to somebody else. The king read in their hearing. Now notice, the priests, the prophets, all the people, there had been a famine for the word. There had been a famine for the word of God. Brothers and sisters, if if there was ever anything lacking around the world in the church world today, one of the great things is lacking is the word. You know, I've I've sat down with young preachers and and listened to them say, you know, the way you get a sermon is you come up with a thought that you want to say and then you go find verses to back it up. No. The way that you do this is you read the word every day. That's That's where good sermons come from. You read the whole Bible every day. Many young pastors today, in their arrogance, they don't read their Bibles. It's not something that for them is a necessity. And then they wonder why they get all kinds of funky attitudes and things in their brains. You know, you read the word every day. I love the fact that the king read. And the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord. All right, so the king stood by the pillar, made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord, to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all of his heart and all of his soul. Now notice these things he makes a covenant to do. I'm going to walk after the Lord. I'm going to keep his commandments and testimonies. I'm going to perform the words of this covenant that are written in this book. And all the people joined the covenant. Now this This is good leadership. This is leadership into revival. But the people, first of all, have to know what God says. You can't lead people into a revival of emotions. You can lead people into a revival of relationship. And there is a difference. This is a revival of relationship, not a revival of emotions. Now, there will always be emotions contained within that relationship, but it's not just about having an emotional experience. He led them to make a covenant with the Lord. And the king commanded Hilkiah the high priest and the priests of the second order and the keepers of the household to bring out of the temple of the Lord all the vessels made for Baal, for Asherah, and all the hosts of heaven. Wow, I love this. I love this. And he burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of the Kidron and carried their ashes to Bethel. Now notice that. He cleaned. Wow. 
He cleaned God's house of all idolatry. I love that. You know, I've walked into churches before and I've been shocked at the Chinese idols, the Indian idols, the Japanese idols, and they consider them a museum piece. And they, they, they think that all these things have a place in God's house. Beloved, they don't. I mean, I, I'm just weird about stuff like that. There is nothing connected to idolatry that has a place in God's house. It's God's house. It's not a museum. It's God's house. Cleaned it all out. And he deposed the priests whom the kings of Judah had ordained to make offerings in the high places at the cities of Judah and around Jerusalem. And those who burned insults to Baal, to the sun, the moon, and the constellations, and all the hosts of heavens, he fired. He fired the false preachers. <laughs> Good king, he fired the false preachers. He deposed them. I like that. And he brought out the Asherah from the house of the Lord outside Jerusalem to the brook Kidron. And he burned it at the brook Kidron and beat it into dust and cast the dust of it upon the graves of common people. That ugly human male sexual organ, giant, that had been put in God's house. He took it out. He broke down the houses of the male cult prostitutes who were in the house of the Lord, where the woman wove hangings for the Asherah. There are actually male cult prostitutes, and these would have been bisexual. They were having sex with men, and they were having sex with women as part of the worship of the Asherah, of this giant male sexual organ. Now, one of the things you have to understand is the devil always wants to defile God's house with ugly sex. I mean, with, with, ugh, okay? There were houses of male cult prostitutes. Now, this is not the only time. The sons of Eli, they were having sex with women in the tent of meeting. I mean, it's like go to the holy place and have sex. That would be like coming to church and having sex on the altar with women. The devil always wants to defile the altar with sin. It just I, I look at this and I wonder how in the world did it all get this bad? But it didn't get this bad all at once. But it got cleaned up all at once. And he brought all the priests out of the cities of Judah and, the def and defiled the high places where the priests made offerings from Geba to Beersheba, and he broke down the high places of the gates that were the entrance of the gate of Joshua, the governor of the city, which was on one's left at the gate of the city. However, the priests of the high places did not come up to the altar of the Lord in Jerusalem, but they ate unleavened bread with their brothers. And he defiled Tohith, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnon, so that no one might burn his son or daughter as an offering to Molech. He defiled the altar. This place where people came and burned their children alive, burned their babies alive to prove their devotion.
and he removed the horses that the kings of Judah had dedicated to the sun at the entrance to the house of the Lord. Now, isn't it interesting, the horses? Do you remember the one thing God said? He said, I don't want you to bring up horses from, from Egypt. Everything God says not to do, the devil wants to stick it in God's face in his house. By the chamber of Namalek, the chamberlain, which was in the precincts. And he burned the chariots of the sun with fire. The horses and chariots. God said, never trusted horses and chariots. They made horses and chariots part of their, their worship and defiling God's house. I mean, just, just tie this in. No horses. No horses and chariots. Tie that all together. And the altars of the roof of the upper chamber of Ahaz, which the kings of Judah had made, and the altars that Manasseh had made in the two courts of the house of the Lord, he pulled down and broke in broken pieces and cast the dust of them into the brook of Kidron. So notice, all of this defiling had been slowly coming in. Again, you got to get the principle. Defilement of God's house. is gradual. It's kind of like boiling crabs in a pot. You put them in and put in cold water and then you slowly heat it up. It's gradual. Cleaning is all at once. You don't remove a little bit of the sin. Okay. And the king defiled the high places that were east of Jerusalem to the south of the Mount of Corruption, which Solomon, the king of Israel, had built for the Ashereth, the abomination of the Sidonians. All right, so Solomon, he built one of these Ashereth. He built one of these giant male sexual organs, the abomination of the Sidonians, and for Chemos, the abomination of Moab, and for Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. And he broke in pieces the pillars and cut down the Asherim and filled their places with the bones of men. Moreover, the altar at Bethel, the high place erected by Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. That altar with the high place he pulled down and burned, reducing it to dust. He also burned the Asherah. Now notice, these Asherah are everywhere. These male sexual organs stuck up in the middle, they're everywhere. But now this, this high place erected by Jeroboam, this was the golden calf. This was the golden calf. Remember, there's one in Dan. And there's one in Bethel. As Joshua turned, he saw the tombs that were on the mount. And he sent and took the bones out of the tombs and burned them on the altar and defiled it, according to the word of the Lord that the man of God proclaimed, who predicted these things. And he said, what is that monument that I see? And the men of the city told him, it is the tomb of the man who came from Judah and predicted these things that you have done against the altar at Bethel. And he said, let them be. Let no man move his bones. So they let his bones alone. But the bones of the prophet who came out of Samaria. And Joshua removed, or Josiah removed all the shrines of also the high places that were in the cities of Samaria, which the kings of Israel made, provoking the Lord to anger. He did to them according to all he had done at Bethel. He sacrificed all the priests of the high places who were there on the altars and burned human bones on them. Then he returned to Jerusalem. 
And the king commanded all the people, Keep the Passover to the Lord your God, as it is written in the book of this covenant. He said, all right, we cleaned house. All right, they've cleaned house. Now, focus on God. Now, sometimes you got to clean house before people can focus on God. For no such Passover had been kept since the days of the judges who judged Israel. And during all the days of the kings of Israel or of the kings of Judah, but in the 18th year of the King Josiah, this Passover was kept to the Lord in Jerusalem. What a day that must have been for God. Moreover, Josiah put away all the mediums and the necromancers and the household gods and the idols and all the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah and Jerusalem, that he might establish the words of the law Get this word. That he might establish the word of the law written in the book that Hilkiah the priest found in the house of the Lord. He said, I don't want any of this stuff here. We want God. Now, brothers and sisters, you're going to have to understand. If you want God, you got to get rid of the blah. Okay? I mean, you, you, can't, you can't keep the blah around and think that you're going to have the presence. It doesn't work that way. Now look at how God judges this man. He said, Before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all of his heart and with all of his soul and with all of his might according to the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. I want a heart like that. He was more than a reformer. He was a revolutionary for God. Still the Lord did not turn from the burning of his great, great wrath by which his anger was kindled against Judah because of all of the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. Previous leadership. I call this the ghost of leaders past. And the Lord said, I will remove Judah also out of my sight, as I have removed Israel. And I will cast off this city that I have chosen, Jerusalem, and the house of which I have said, My name shall be there. God still was going to do it. Now the rest of the acts of Josiah and all he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? In his days, Pharaoh, Necho, king of Egypt, went up to the king of Assyria, to the river Euphrates, and king Josiah went to meet him. And Pharaoh Necho killed him at Megiddo, as soon as he saw him. And his servants carried him dead in a chariot from Megiddo and brought him to Jerusalem and buried him in his own tomb. And the people of the land took Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah, and anointed him and made him king in their father's place. Jehoahaz was 23 years old when he began to ring, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hamutal, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his prophets had done. Now, beloved, you look at this and you go, now, wait a minute. How could this happen? Well, I think you need to realize
leadership required changes. Do not change people's hearts. You cannot legislate living for God. And after so many generations of all this demon stuff, there's only so much Josiah could do. And one day it's time for him just to go to heaven. And Pharaoh Necho, verse 33, put him in bonds in Riblah, in the land of Hamath, that he might not reign in Jerusalem. And he laid on the land a tribute of a hundred talents of silver and a talent of gold. And Pharaoh Necho made Elakim, the son of Josiah, king in the place of Josiah his father, and changed his name to Jehoiakim. And he took Jehoaz away, and he came to Egypt and died there. And Jehoiakim gave the silver and the gold to Pharaoh, but he taxed the land to give the money according to the command of Pharaoh. He exacted the silver and the gold of the people of the land from everyone according to his assessment to give to Pharaoh Necho. Jehoiakim was 25 years old. He began to reign, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Zebeda, the daughter of Padiah of Rumah. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his fathers had done. All right, so we have a father, then we have a son, and now we have a grandson. The son and the grandson weren't changed by the grandfather. Isn't that sad? You wonder how different the story would be if they had just followed their daddy's heart. Chapter 24, verse 1. In his days... Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up, and Jehoiakim became his servant for three years. Then he turned and rebelled against him, and the Lord sent against him bands of Chaldeans, and bands of Syrians, and bands of Moabites, and bands of Ammonites, and sent them against Judah to destroy it, according to the word of the Lord he had spoken by his servants the prophets. Surely this came upon Judah at the command of the Lord, to remove them out of his sight, for the sins of Manasseh, according to all he had done. According for the sins of Manasseh, and also for the innocent blood he had shed, for he had filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, and the Lord would not pardon. Now the rest of the sins of Jehoiakim and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And Jehoiakim slept with his fathers, and Jehoiachin, his son, reigned in his place. And the king of Egypt did not come again out of his land, for the king of Babylon had taken all that belonged to the king of Egypt, from the brook of Egypt to the river Euphrates. We're going to stop reading to there. Now that's some that's some strong stuff. But you see, one man wanting to change. He can make a lot of changes. He reads the word. This man's heart changed. But you cannot legislate a changed heart. Beloved, let me just throw this out at you. I can't make you live right, and I can't make your kids live right. I can teach you the Bible. But can I beg of you, for the next generations of Jesus tarries, it is important how you live. Don't just hear the word. Be a doer of the word. Jesus said, those who hear my words and don't put them into practice, he said, those are not my disciples. If you really want to be a student of the Lord, and that's what disciple means as a student, a learner, hear the word and do the word in Jesus' name.
All right, let's open up our hearts and spend some more time in worship. Yes, and 
Our New Testament passage today picks up in Acts chapter 21, verse 1. Now when we had parted from them and set sail, we went by straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. This is Paul's trip back to Jerusalem. Now, most of these would be inter-island, all right? So these are short journeys, day by day by day, intercoastal ships. He said, now, when we had come in sight of Cyprus, and now they're out in the open ocean, all right? They found a ship crossing. These were no longer intercoastal vessels. He's on a larger vessel now. And when we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Now notice, Paul looked for believers. Paul looked for believers. He looked for the local church. Can I just make a little thought in here. Have you ever noticed when Sister Bev and I travel, we like to go to church? Have you ever heard us talk about when we're on vacation or something, we go to church? Now, I I can remember one time visiting my mom and dad. I think I went to four churches or five churches that Sunday trying to find a good service because I didn't know the churches anymore. Now, now brothers and sisters, sometimes you just got to go, you know what? I'm a Christian. And even when I'm on holiday, I go to church. But what happens if I don't like it? To the bitter soul, everything doesn't taste good. But to the hungry soul, even the bitter is sweet. When you're hungry, God always gives you something. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. This is this constant warning that Paul had, the warning. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with their wives and children, accompanied us as we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed. All right, so here is a posture of prayer. People say, why do we kneel in prayer sometimes? Well, they knelt. They were kneeling and praying. And said farewell to one another. Then we went on board and they returned home. When we'd finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Poltomias, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for a day. Now notice again, we're looking for the, the church. On the next day we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the evangelist. Now remember Philip? The guy who evangelized Samaria? Okay. Obviously he had, this was his office of ministry. He functioned in the office of an evangelist who was one of the seven. So we have a deacon. Who became. An evangelist. Who was one of the seven. And stayed with him. All right. Now we see hospitality. One of the things Paul always teaches us about in the ministry is we are to show hospitality to traveling ministers. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Whoa. So here we have women in ministry. Now, beloved, you know, people take that verse on women should be silent. 
And they take that thing so out of context and make it say what it does not say. When when you read the preponderance of scriptures, you realize you're going to have to dig a little deeper to understand what that one little verse means. Because here you have a woman, you have four daughters of one of the first seven deacons who now functions in the office of an evangelist. And he's got four unmarried daughters who prophesy. Now, you don't prophesy quietly. You prophesy with your voice. These women were not silent in church. These were prophetesses. So ladies, get over this complementarianism stuff where, where you're told to be silent and God, you know, the men do the ministry and women, you just compliment your husbands. You just compliment men. No. Women, God has a ministry for you. Don't let anybody shut you down. And, you know, sometimes I get shocked when I, I read some of the stuff like Beth Moore was saying that, you know, some of this complementarianism doctrine, she said, okay, okay, okay. But she said, once they begin to push it as a prime doctrine. In other words, it's necessary to believe for salvation. Then, then she fights against it. Now, you know what? Me too. I'm going to fight against that. If you want to disagree about whether women should preach or not, that's your problem. But to tell me that people who believe it aren't saved, and to tell me that women who are, are preachers aren't saved? No, 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 no. You know, I, I, went, I looked at a guy one time and I said, you know, I finally figured out why you don't think I'm saved. I said, you don't think I'm saved because we have women preachers. And he bowed his head and I said, yeah, that's right, isn't it? I said, you think that we are an abomination to God. And I said, sir, when you get to heaven, you're going to have a real hard time because you're going to see all these women preachers with these great mansions, and you're going to see God honoring them and rewarding for all these women for all this faithfulness. I said, oh, you're going to, I said, but you really won't struggle because God will wipe away all your tears. <laughs> and then we had a good laugh together. While we were staying there for many days, a prophet named Agabus, all right, now this is the same guy who went up to Antioch, all right? and prophesied about the famine uh, that was going to come across the whole Roman world, all right? He came down from Judea. Now, remember, Jerusalem is up high on the mountain Judea. He came down to Caesarea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet in his hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and will deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Wow. So this will happen. Now that's, that's a, a prophetic understanding of the future. After we heard this, we and the people around us urged him not to go to Jerusalem. This is the response. Now, this will happen. This is Holy Spirit speaking. The response, this is human hearts. Now, brothers and sisters, you have to understand that the gifts of the Spirit in the New Testament, especially prophecy, is never directive. It may foretell, it may be forthtelling or foretelling, it may speak of the, of the future or more be, be more like a sermon. But even if it's predictive of the future, it's not telling you what to do. Okay, it's saying this is going to happen. Just like Agabus prophesied that there would be a famine and the church in Antioch of Assyria decided, our response to that is, we decide to send an offering. He wasn't prophesying and then saying, now God says take an offering. In the same way, he said, this is what God says is going to happen in Jerusalem. But he didn't tell Paul not to go. 
the people's response, the response of their human hearts. And Paul answered, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be in prison, but to even die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Let the will of the Lord. Thank you, Paul would say. Thank you. Because I'm going to Jerusalem. I know it's going to be hard on me there. But you know what? There's some things I have to face. And I'm willing to face them. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Menson of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we could lodge. Now, all right, so they go partway up to Jerusalem, and then they spend the night. Because it is a pretty good haul up that mountain. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. Ah, oh, that must have made Paul happy. Notice, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went with us to James, and all the other elders were present. And after greeting them, he related one by one, okay, details. He related one by one the things God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. Not talking about anybody else, talking about himself. And when they heard it, they glorified God and said to him, You see how many thousands there are among the Jews who have believed. Now this next phrase, they are all zealous for the law. That's one of my big question marks I had in the early days of my life. Why were they zealous for the law? Why were they not zealous for grace? You see, this Acts 11 problem grew in Jerusalem, the Judaizers, where they said you still have to do all the stuff of the law in order to be saved. It grew and it overwhelmed the church. The church in Jerusalem became a saved by law and not saved by grace place. And that's very sad. If you wonder why the church of Jerusalem died, this is your key sentence to understand. And they have been told how about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses. Right, he said, now, okay, hey, they've been told about you. Telling them not to circumcise their children or to walk according to our customs. All right, so Paul has been lied about. And here's my question. Why not defended by the elders? in Jerusalem. Why did, why did they allow this to get into everybody? Why didn't they stand up and say, now folks, we know that's not true about Paul. Why is it that they allowed all the people, why did they allow the Christians, why did they allow the Christians to have their minds polluted by lies? Why did they allow the Christians to be polluted by lies? I ask the question. I, I don't have an answer. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. I said, all right, we're going we're to tell you something to do. This is not God. This is what they said to do. 
we have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but you yourself also live in observance of the law. He said, we want you to prove the lie by one act. He said, we want you to do this one thing, and that will prove it's a lie. Now, brothers and sisters, please forgive me. That never works. This never works. You, you cannot, in one act, overcome years of lies against you. You, you just can't do it. You, you can't do it. I mean, people believe what they want to believe, and they see you doing something, and they'll they, they see your actions through the lens of their own perceptions. And it didn't work. He said, but now as for the Gentiles who have believed, we've sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. He said, all right, Paul, we, we're, we're not telling you the saved by grace doesn't work. All right, so we stand by earlier decision. But notice, notice, no talk of salvation by grace. And that was the big takeaway in the Acts 11 conference, remember? Peter stood up and talked about salvation by grace. James stood up and talked about salvation by grace. But now they're overwhelmed. Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them, and he went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. When the seven days was almost complete, the Jews from Asia, great revival area, remember the great revival of Ephesus, Pergamum, Colossae, Laodicea, Herapolis, the seven churches of Asia, where in two years every Jew and every Greek heard the word of the Lord. The Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him. Wow. The Jews from Asia <laughs> stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him. <laughs> Folks, you can never prove that something is a lie by one act. Crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere. Everyone everywhere. Against the people, that's not true. Against the law, that's not true. And against this place, the temple, that's not true. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple who have defiled this holy place. Again. Not true. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city. And they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. People attack with suspicions. Then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together and they seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that was in Jerusalem, was in confusion. And he at once took the soldiers of the centurions and ran down to them. Now, why does it run down? Because if this is the temple courts, 
here's the temple proper. Right next to this is Antonius's fortress. And there's a set of stairs that come right down under the temple courts. That's why it's run down. Okay. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. And he at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune of the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Notice they're beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. And he inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing and some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, there's, there's no truth in a mob, okay? No truth in a mob. He ordered them to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. Now, again, we're coming back over here to these steps right here, okay? These steps right here, they carry him back across and up the steps and into Antonius's fortress. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of people followed him, crying out, Away with him! <laughs> um, this was a hard day for the Apostle Paul. <laughs> All right, let's have a little wisdom as we close out today. We're looking again at the Proverbs 31 woman. She makes linen garments and sells them. All right, so she does business. She delivers sashes to the merchants. More business. Strength and dignity are her clothing. <laughs> I like that. Strength and dignity. When people look at her, what you see when you look at her. Strength and dignity. You don't see sexy and lustful. You see strength and and dignity. And she laughs at the time to come. <laughs> I like the New Living. It says she laughs without fear of the future. A Proverbs 31 woman does not fear the future. She opens her mouth with wisdom. All right, so words. Her words are wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. NLT says she gives instructions with kindness. So wisdom and kindness flow from her words. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. She looks well. New Living says she carefully watches everything in her household and suffers nothing from laziness. That is a Proverbs 31 woman. Amazing woman. All right, we're going to see you tonight, 7 o'clock. We'll get back into the...